turn with me to Acts 23. There is Bibles available at the back. And in a few moments, we'll be picking up the reading from Acts 23 and verse 12. We'll be reading to the end of the chapter. And uh, Paul has given what was always bound to be an unsuccessful defense before the Sanhedrin Council. And Paul, the Apostle Paul has now been taken back into custody again into the Antonia Fortress, named because it was named after Mark Antony, under the auspices of Commander Claudius Lysias. And we're now about to make a journey from Jerusalem down to Caesarea. Before we read together, as is our custom, would you look, let us look to God in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, Almighty God, the creator of all things, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have, we thank you for your revelation, the holy scriptures. We thank you that they're fresh, that every time we read them, we study them, we find something new. We read these lines, and maybe we are familiar with them, from the stores of your mercy and your riches and your grace. We ask that you would feed us this morning, because we are a needy people when we need your word. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and bless us and write your word upon our hearts. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Acts 23 and verse 12, this is the word of God. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink until they'd killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we've killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Just pause there before we read on. Just think of the, the hatred. The hatred, the, the utter hatred of the Jews to Paul. In verse 16, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, and Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him, as Paul's nephew, by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he, that's Claudius Lysias, called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers, 70, with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts, for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. 
and he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued them, him, having learned he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him to down to their council. I found that he had been accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him all to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they'd come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Amen. So far, God's holy word, and we thank him for that. Things have not gone well at the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish council made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. We read back in um, 20, Acts 23 and verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And we read in verse 11, we read in verse 11 that, that that night, we looked at it last time, the Lord Jesus came and stood by Paul. And the Lord Jesus assured Paul that just as he had been a witness to the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem, he would also be a witness to him in Rome. There's a wonderful story of John Bunyan. And a Quaker came to visit John Bunyan when John Bunyan was in prison in Bedford in England in the 17th century. And the Quaker said to John Bunyan something along these lines, that the Lord had sent him to visit Bunyan, but he'd been looking all over Europe to find what prison Bunyan was in. And Bunyan said to him, if the Lord had sent you, he would have told you where I was because he knew where I was all along. Well, the Lord knew where Paul was. The Lord knows where any one of us is at any one time. Which is very, very assuring as we, some of us face uncertain futures or futures of new things. He knows where any one of us is at any one time. When in times of difficulty, in times of distress, in times when circumstances seem to stack up against us, the Lord Jesus comes to Paul and reassures him. But this is a dramatic story that unfolds. I don't know, I mean, when, as, as I read it, even again this morning, I was thinking that, that this would be a much better film to watch than half the tat you see around. It's a dramatic story that unfolds. It's almost like a film, very dramatic, very picturesque. You can imagine, and I'm going to try and paint the picture just a little for you in the time we have available to us this morning. It's a story about a conspiracy. Who doesn't like conspiracy stories? 
We, we watch conspiracy stories for our relaxation. But this is a real story. And the gospel is at stake. It is a story about a night flight with a huge military escort, first to Antipatris and then all the way down to the coastal city of Caesarea, where, if you remember, Paul had just been over a one week before, one week before a free man. Now he's back as a prisoner. So the first thing we see, the first point, is the Jewish conspiracy. This Jewish conspiracy. And members of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, are involved in this conspiracy. The Sadducees section of the Sanhedrin rather than the Pharisees section of the Sanhedrin. But there's a plot. Tempers are hot. It's the next morning and that night this plot has been hatched. And it's a plot to assassinate the Apostle Paul. And that's why I paused when we read it. The hatred, the unimaginable hatred for the Apostle Paul. Hatred is something that should never be part of a believer. Hatred. Hatred. It breaks my heart when I see so-called Christians hating other Christians. It should never be. But as we read this, we can see raw hatred. What had Paul ever done to these men? If history is anything to go by, Paul was a small man. Apparently his eyebrows met and he had a hooked nose, according from tradition. He was a small man. He was a small, insignificant man if history is anything to go by. And if tradition is anything to go by, Paul was not a big man. But he was hated because he loved the gospel. And if you are faithful to the gospel, if you are faithful to the teaching of the Bible, you will be hated. Because it was Paul's ideas, it was Paul's love for the gospel, it was his love for the risen Lord Jesus that brought forth this animosity and this hatred and this violence. And they made this imprecatory oath. I was worried about saying that. It came out all right. But, um, which, which, is, which is to say that they're prepared to die in order to see this oath carried out. And they wouldn't eat or drink until it is done. And there's 40 men in complicity with certain members of the Sanhedrin, including probably the high priest, Ananias. We've seen him a bit before. And the plan is that Paul is to be brought down the next morning from the Antonia Fortress, where he's been held, to the southwest corner where the Sanhedrin are probably going to meet. You get the picture? They're going to they, they're bring him down. They're gonna, and somewhere along that route, maybe in the back streets of Jerusalem, if that is the route they're going to take, or maybe even in the court of the Gentiles, they will take the apostle's life. After all, they had done this kind of thing before. They were these militia, militia. They were, after all, terrorists. They were terrorists to one, freedom fighters to another, of course. The Sisari, as they're called, they've been around for some time. We've already heard mention of one back in Acts 21, that, that Egyptian insurrectionist. 
Jews who were sympathetic to the Romans were being killed by these terrorists. And that is part of the reason for the military escort down to Caesarea, because the roads in and out of Jerusalem were notorious for robbers and thieves, but especially for these kind of murderers. So this terrible conspiracy, this Jewish conspiracy, this terrible plan, was that if they're going to bring the great apostle down, if, if he's, if he's going to get what they want him to have come into him, somewhere along the way they're going to kill him. They literally will knife him in the back. Ananias, the high priest is involved, he's a brutal man, he's a scheming man. At one point in his career, Ananias, the high priest, was pro-Roman. Another time he was pro-militia. He'd be killed, actually, eight years' time from this time we're studying this morning. And Ananias, the high priest, would be killed by the Jews, by the terrorists, whom at one point he had supported. Why? Because they thought he was too pro-Roman. They will burn down his house. They will trap him in an aqueduct, aqueduct below his house with his brother Hezekiah, when the two of them are murdered in that aqueduct. So we have this conspiracy to kill the Apostle Paul, to have him slain simply for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was to be murdered. Why? For simply preaching. That you are saved, not by the works of the law, but by faith alone in Christ alone. And that, and that is what would raise the animosity of these people. Now my friends, make no mistake about it there is tremendous hostility toward the gospel today. There is tremendous hostility toward the gospel of Jesus Christ today. It takes various forms. You can't understand maybe how these men would be prepared to kill Paul for the gospel. Or just think of things in our recent history. Think of 9-11. Think of Middle Eastern terrorists. I think of pastors who went to the Mays prison, who sat and spoke to the IRA terrorists. I remember I heard of one testimony, one pastor, he went to the Mays, he went to visit this IRA terrorist every week in prison. And this terrorist had given his life to the Lord Jesus. And the pastor recounted listening to this terrorist as he tried to describe the fan how he had once felt. That he was prepared to murder, and he had murdered, and he had murdered several people. He had made bombs with nails in, in order, in order to kill. And we're reminded of the violence that is in natural man, in the natural heart, the unconverted heart, toward the gospel. Make no mistake about it, there is something satanic about the hostility toward the gospel. So first of all, we have this Jewish conspiracy. But secondly, there is a deliverance. And it's by Paul's nephew, the son of his sister. Now that was slipped in while you were not looking, wasn't it? You know, Paul has a sister? Really? What? Paul has a sister and a nephew? Why haven't we heard about this before? Where in all of Paul's letters that he wrote? Where in the 13 epistles of the Apostle Paul? Where, where, where are these people? Where are the relatives? Is there any mention of a sister or a nephew? Who are these people? 
Did Paul visit them? This is his fourth visit to Jerusalem. There's no mention of him ever visiting his family. Are his parents still alive? I don't know how many millions I'm up to, but this is like about seven and a half million questions I'm writing down to ask <laughs> in heaven. Did Paul, where was Paul's parents? Paul, had, if you remember, had come from Tarsus in, Cilic in Cilicia. He'd come as a young boy to study in Jerusalem, perhaps even before his teens. His family must have been extraordinarily wealthy to afford Paul's kind of elitist education. Maybe, perhaps, although we cannot prove it, but perhaps his family had come with him to Jerusalem. Imagine when the Apostle Paul was converted. He was converted around the year 33 AD, and we're now 57 AD. So in those chapters, 24 years have gone by since Paul met the Lord on the Damascus Road. At the time of his conversion, what would his parents have thought? You see, as a son of a Pharisee, he would have in all likelihood have been disinherited. That's not uncommon in that setting, that if converted to Christianity, they may well have held a funeral for him. I remember hearing of devout and but almost medieval Roman Catholics in Northern Ireland, in the south of Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, being converted and being ostracized by their families. Never spoken to again. No birthday cards, no Christmas presents, not being allowed to visit with their family. And that is my experience, of course, having been brought up in a, in a, in a strict arm of the exclusive brethren. Some, some Jews hold funerals for people who live Judaism. You might not think that is possible in the 21st century, but it is. Imagine what Paul's father would have thought of the wasted education given to his son. I've heard, and, may, and, and maybe you have, of unbelieving men saying to their sons who have gone through further education, having had the best academic university education, but when the son is converted at university and goes into ministry, I've heard men say, what a waste. What a waste. Well, you multiply that by a thousandfold here. Maybe Paul's parents are no longer alive. We do not hear anything about them. But he definitely would have been a person non gratis in the family. But there's a sister, apparently, and there is a nephew. And this nephew has access somehow or other to this plot, this conspiracy. I do not know the answer to these questions. Blood is thicker than water, they say. But whatever the case, this young man, and he's obviously, did you notice, he's a young boy. He's a young boy because the centurion takes him by the hand. So this is a young boy, this boy. He's a, he's a young boy. And his nephew goes to the Apostle Paul. He goes to the prison. We're not sure how, how come he was not seen. He must have done this surely in a highly furtive discussion. So we've got a young boy now who's involved in this, making his way to his uncle in prison. It's night time. He informs the apostle, his uncle, of the plot. And do you see what this is saying? That God, God is at work, my friends. God is using extraordinary means. And yes, can I say little things? He's a little children. God is using a small boy, a young child, to accomplish his gospel purpose. To ensure that his providential design to the apostle Paul 
and the spread of the gospel and for you and me are accomplished. I wonder if we were to have a session and we related to each other or you related to me, your conversion. It's wonderfully encouraging sometimes, especially when we were abroad, to sit with people and to hear about how people came to faith in Christ. How did God bring you to Christ? And it's wonderful to hear how maybe the faith of a Christian family or being saved in an extraordinary fashion. What were the factors involved? I imagine there would be extraordinary little details involved for you and me. You know, I can trace mine back to being promised a shilling. Yes, I was that alive in those days. Promised a shilling to, to memorise Isaiah 53 by a well-meaning brother. He, 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 he promised me a shilling. And I was fascinated by Isaiah 53. And I asked my mother, was it for me? And she led me to the Lord Jesus Christ. But for others I've heard, I've heard of one, one minister who was led to Christ by a Beethoven, Beethoven sonata. Maybe it's a little thing. Maybe that seems a trivial thing. Maybe it's got nothing to do with the gospel, certainly nothing to do with Christianity, but that's what God used. God used somebody to bribe me with a shilling. God used this little boy. And despite what evidently must have been family animosity toward the Apostle Paul, God used his nephew because that is what God does. And God has designs and God has purposes and God has work for the Apostle Paul to do. Which of course is what Joseph learned, isn't it? In all the multifaceted nature of Joseph's life from the time when he was a spoiled teenager with his lovely Adidas branded clothes. I just threw that in there. But God used a coat of many colours, the equivalent of a brand today. Whatever it is just now, until he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt, in order that through him, God would save his people alive through a period of famine. And Joseph says to his brothers, from the vantage point of time, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God meant it for good. So we had the conspiracy and we had the extraordinary deliverance and the little boy and then there's the night flight. I do not know about you, but I would have loved to have seen this. I would have loved to have seen this. I was thinking this past week. I drift away sometimes when I was when I'm preparing a sermon, then I drifted away more than normal this week because I was trapped in an aeroplane. But, and I was gone about 20 minutes and I imagined what it would have been like back in AD 57. And I imagined being dropped off in AD 57 somewhere outside Jerusalem. And I'd want to go down the road down where they travelled to Antipatris and to Caesarea. And I'd have loved to have seen 200 interfree in infantry, 200 spearmen and 70 cavalry. Now, I don't know for any mathematicians here, that's 470. I can count as well, but 470 soldiers. Now, scholars will tell you that the estimated number of soldiers in Jerusalem was 600. 
Because, by the way, the military headquarters for Rome in Judea was in Caesarea. It was only a small garrison of soldiers in Jerusalem. And 470 out of 600 are being deployed to secure the safety of the Apostle Paul. That's a massive percentage. Brothers and sisters, the world is coming to the defence of the Gospel. The world is coming to Paul's defence, albeit for a short time. Is that not extraordinary? Is that not something ironic? I think, this is what I thought last week, that Luke would have loved to have write this. He would have literally been chuckling as he wrote this little part of Acts 23. That Rome, probably the most powerful empire this world has ever seen, the Roman Empire, that Rome, with its crack soldiers and its cavalrymen and its infantry and its spearmen, and they're marching by night fervently to protect the Apostle Paul. My friends, it is no secret what God can do. And Paul is given a horse to ride on. And from the grammar of the passage, other horses from which he can put his books and his parchments and his belongings. Maybe that's a flight of fancy, and I need to check that when I get to heaven. But the mighty empire of Rome is coming to the defense of Paul. For a season, for a season. And then there is this letter. Claudius Lysias, the commander, sends a letter. And it's a wonderful, extraordinary letter. You might wonder, how did Luke ever get his hands on the letter written by a Roman commander in Jerusalem to the Roman governor in Caesarea? And maybe in the exchanges that will take place in order in to come between Felix, the Roman governor, and Paul, that Felix showed this letter to the apostle Paul. There, that is a possibility, though Paul, Luke says a letter to this effect. It's a general letter. It's the sort of letter these commanders would write. But do you, do you, do you notice what it says? And do you notice what it does not say? You notice how the commander says, I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned he was a Roman citizen. He did not know anything of the sort. Nor is there any mention in this letter of the, the fact that he almost had him flogged. Because Claudius Lysias is looking after himself. He's writing to Marcus Antonius Felix, the one-time freedman, released slave. He's now the governor of Judea. He was freed by the mother of Emperor Claudius, along with his brother. And his brother, Marcus Antonius Pallas, and Emperor Claudius were close. It's extraordinary what is going on, the little twists and turns. And Paul, having been brought halfway, 35 miles or so to Antipatris, perhaps spending a few hours to rest, and then going all the way to Caesarea. Eventually, Paul comes into contact with the governor of Judea, Marcus Antonius Felix. And learning that he is from, Paul is from Cilicia, Marcus Antonius Felix is prepared to try the case. What is going on here? Well, what do you think is going on in Paul's mind as it now becomes apparent that the trial is about to take place. Because all we've had so far, you understand, are pre-trial hearings. And now the trial is going to take place in earnest. And according to the law of the Romans, the Roman Empire law, his accusers must be there in order to face him. And they're still in Jerusalem, and it will take at least five days 
to get here. And we'll read about that in due course. But Paul is in the fortress in Caesarea. He's met Felix. I wonder what's going on in his mind. Just over a week ago, he had been in the Caesarea as a free man. He had met with the church in Caesarea. There's no mention of the church now. I wonder what the folks in the church in Caesarea were thinking. Do you not think some of them were saying, I knew it was a bad idea to go to Jerusalem? Did they visit him? Did they take him parcels of food, perhaps? They most certainly were praying for him. And yet Paul is in that cell in Caesarea, uncertain of what the future holds. But he knows this one thing. That Jesus, the Lord Jesus, had met with him two days before and said to him that he would go to Rome. It's going to take two years before he gets to Rome. Two years before the apostle gets to Rome. God's providence, my friend, is never in a hurry. I find myself much more in a hurry than God's. God promise, God's promises are never in a hurry, but his timing is perfect. God's promises are never in a hurry, but his timing is perfect. And God gives us what we need for today. That is the message of the Bible. Give us this day our daily bread. And grace is like that. We want grace for today, and we want to see how it's going to work out for the next 365. But God's grace is not like that. We trust God for today. Imagine what's going on in Paul's mind. Is he contemplating events of the last weeks, the last days? It had been a traumatic week in his life. I imagine because he was thinking that he was going to go to Rome, and perhaps he was going to Rome soon, that perhaps he was reflecting on the letter that he'd written to the church in Rome just a few weeks before, when he was in Corinth. And I wonder if he was reflecting on the words that he had written in that letter that have been the cause of great comfort to the Lord's people ever since he wrote it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now imagine, I'm just speculating now, you understand what is going on in the mind of the Apostle Paul in the prison cell. And he contemplates all the things that have been happening to him, the people that have been involved, the circumstances that have befallen him, the little things, the big things, the deliverances from death, the deliverance from this murderous conspiratorial, conspiratorial plot to kill him. And I imagine for the Apostle Paul there is one thing that is spinning through his mind as he tries to sleep and prepare himself for the trial that will take place in five days' time, that God is in charge here, God is in control. And my friends, I need that. I need to be reminded of that every day. That God is in control. That every detail, every circumstance, every set of con contingencies, the big things and the little things, that God is working his plan and God is fulfilling his purpose. John Newton once said, he was thinking of the, the ark, the rainbow, that is the sign and the seal of the covenant with Noah. The ark that represents the promise of God. And John Newton said, if you think you can see the ark falling, 
you can be sure it's due to a swimming in your head. There is something wrong with your head if you think that the ark of God's sign, the rainbow, is falling from the sky. Because God's promises can never fail. God's purpose is sure, it is certain. And I imagine for the Apostle Paul as he contemplates what is going on in his life, these days in a cell in Caesarea, I imagine that is what is going on in his mind, that I can trust him. My friends, my dear friends, whatever is going on in your life, you can trust God. You can trust God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would write it upon our hearts and give us the assurance of faith, trusting in you and your promise, now and forever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.